this episode, and we are doing something a bit unusual in speaking directly to current events. We generally make our episodes evergreen, as they say in the podcastosphere, things you can drop in on at any time. Uh, two years ago, we did one when the pandemic broke out, but other than that, we have not really said very much about it, about all of the um, disputes and mandates and vaccine controversies and so forth, we have felt that was not our sphere to weigh in on. But um, things are different for us. It is now the middle of March 2022, and Vladimir Putin has led an invasion of the sovereign state of Ukraine and justified it for both political, cultural, ethical, and religious reasons. Also, um, I'm guessing for you as for me, Dad, a number of people have asked me what I thought about it because they know of our Slovakia connection, our ties to Eastern Europe and that part of the world, our friends there. And so, you know, uh, there, there's this idea that one should be completely universal in one's concerns, but that is not true. We are all specific beings. And so I think this touches both of us in a way that other world events have not. But I think we can also see that this has the potential to be that next, <laughs> that thing we're not saying, that thing that everyone is actually saying now, the potential to become World War III. And there are so many resonances to um, what has happened in the past. And uh, Dad in particular has been a very careful student of what led up to and what unfolded during the Second World War that we felt that um, it was appropriate for us to speak up. So all the proper caveats here that we are, you know, we do not have the God's eye view of anything. We do not have the intelligence on the ground. We are getting our news like you are through um, the news, which is not always reliable and is, as we know, eminently corruptible, as well as from other sources, alternate visions of what's going on. And we are trying to discern the truth just like you are. But we are coming to you today to try to give you, our listeners, some way of, of thinking theologically about what we think we know so far. Right, Sarah. We don't have um, comprehensive knowledge. It's a fast-changing situation. What we say could be outdated in a week or a month. Uh, or maybe in an hour, who knows? Uh, but it is, I think, a duty we have to intervene to try to frame the questions that arise here theologically. And I would like to say that we have to always, therefore, begin with Pauline hope against hope. Hope against hope is not a rational optimism based upon projection into the future of current trends that we can uh, scientifically know. But hope against hope is hope in the God of the resurrection, who is in the providential business of making good out of evil. And in that light, I would say this, Sarah, our first duty is to name and explain the evil that we are experiencing in this uh, in this invasion of Ukraine by Russia. What do you say about that? Uh, I think it's a, a painful duty. And I think it, you know, in our, our Western cultural moment, which apparently is one of the causes for Putin's aggression, um, we have so painfully learned the lessons of not naming evil, that on the one hand, like we've gone overboard and are naming evil left, right, and center, as we <laughs> talked about in our episode on cancel culture, right? right? But on the other hand, there is a kind of um, 
I've seen this in myself and I've been really working against it is this um, dogged naivete where, you know, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things um, is sort of projected outward in this massive um, uh, Pollyanna unwillingness to reckon with reality as it is. And um, and, you know, and that's not. The U.S. Uh, speaking as an American here, the U.S. has made so many wrong military decisions in the past fifty and sixty years. I, you know, when uh, my son has occasionally expressed interest in joining the military, all I could hear is, "Why would you want to align yourself with such unrighteous causes?" And I have to say, Dad, for the first time in my life, I feel kind of differently, <laughs> and um, that's hard for me to say and admit because, you know, I'm. I'm a Christian. I'm in favor of peace and um, turning the other cheek and loving the enemy. And to have to say, no, part of my Christian duty is also, uh, once I have taken the log out of my eye, to attend to the speck in my neighbor's eye and to, you know, cast out the evil. Uh, you can feel my discomfort radiating through the microphone, can't you? Well, sure, sure. And it's a, it's a discomfort that I share. Uh, I've made terrible mistakes in judgment years ago uh, on matters of war and peace. And uh, I hope I've learned from those mistakes. Uh, and there's some, uh, there's some natural inhibitions, uh, not knowing all the data, not knowing all the information, uh, venturing to speak out. But I think I, we can say one simple thing here, uh, which any Christian should be able to say. I know murder when I see murder. That's it. I know murder when I see murder. I know unprovoked aggression, uh, which seems now to be intent on sheer destruction. And I think that simply has to overcome all of our inhibitions, some inhibitions due to our own mistakes and guilt about the past, other inhibitions about fear of getting involved in a terrible war, uh, we have we have to at least make the effort now to name and explain the evil. And I think we should do that in the classically Lutheran way with the two kingdoms analysis. And just to remind our viewers of how we take that, God governs the world with his left hand by means of political coercion, since love must be against what is against love. We can't make everyone love each other from their heart, but we can sure, um, as Martin Luther King put it, right, the law can't make you love me, but it can sure stop you from lynching me. So that's the secular authorities have a divine mandate to protect the innocent and arrest the perpetrators. Now, that perspective on the left-hand kingdom uh, doctrine uh, comes from God's right-hand kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, where the same God of love has found in Jesus Christ the way to be merciful to real, not imaginary sinners. That includes even the sinners who are the present perpetrators of manifest evil. And so I propose that we tackle this question, Sarah, with that, with that double perspective of the two kingdoms. Uh, I think Wolfhard Pannenberg has writ written something very good to this effect. You want to tell us what that is? Uh, yeah, you selected this quote. It's from his Systematic Theology. So I'll, I'll just read it out and then you can comment on it. 
The universality of sin forbids the moralism that will not accept solidarity with those who become the instruments of the destructive power of evil. Sin's universality show such a moralistic attitude to be hypocrisy. The Christian doctrine of the universality of sin has the specific function, for all the need to check manifest evil and its consequences, of helping to preserve solidarity with evildoers, in whose conduct the sin that is latently at work in all of us finds expression. This anti-moralistic function of the doctrine has often been underrated. In the modern world, it has fallen victim to the dissolution of the doctrine of original sin, when a different doctrine of sin's universality has not replaced it. If such views, for their part, are based on the idea of actual sin, moralism can be advocated only in part and at cost of enhanced guilt feelings weakening of the conviction that a universality of sin precedes all individual acts has opened the door to the moralism that either seeks evil in others or by inward aggression produces self-destructive feelings of guilt. Thank you, Sarah. I think this is very wise uh, words from Ponenberg. Of course, he's thinking about uh, the, the weight that Germans feel for the history of, uh, of Nazism in their past. Um, and I think it's a genuinely evangelical perspective to challenge the, fanat the, self, uh, the fanatical self-righteousness of moralism, which helps us not at all. So I want to note about this quote two things especially. Acknowledging the universality of sin, and that includes American and Western sins, and as you mentioned a bit ago, does not relieve us from the moral obligation to check the aggression of the evildoer so far as it is in our just power to do so. The fact that we are morally compromised doesn't matter. What matters is that the victims are getting slaughtered. I, I just want to under, underscore that point because it's very easy to to get hung up. And, you know, as we said, not without um, reason on, you know, we've made so many mistakes before, how dare we again? Um, but then that makes our, in a way, our bad feelings more important than the situation of people who are actually being murdered, a sovereign nation that has been invaded, the lust for destruction that lies behind it. Um, our, our guilt feelings do not take priority over that. Right. And, you know, uh, in our, our congregation, we've been sung the litany uh, uh, to observe this crisis. And uh, the pastor uh, even uh, wrote a petition for the prayers of the church based on Luther's uh, interpretation of the Lord's Prayer petition, deliver us from evil. Uh, and where Luther says that we ask, or that, uh, we ask in this prayer, that God would defeat every scheme of the devil, the world, and our sinful selves that would prevent us from hallowing God's name and hinder the coming of His kingdom. And and he thought that in that light it was appropriate to pray that Putin's invasion fail. And I complimented him on that. I said, that's, that's parsing the problem exactly right, because we don't pray for God to take vengeance on Putin. That, that's, that, that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That is God's business to judge Putin eternally. Uh, and, and so we don't pray for the damnation of Putin, or for that matter, especially of the Russian people. 
It helps not at all for us to demonize the aggressor as the incarnation of some supernatural evil. When the aggression actualizes a potentiality in all of us fallen sinners, what helps is, as we've already said, Sarah, the recognition of our own sinfulness with our own culpability for our own acts of aggression. And that penitent self-awareness checks our own tendency to moralistic self-righteous fanaticism when what we have is a solemn duty now to defend victims of manifest evil. Well said, well said. Okay, so let's try to make some analysis of what's going on here. I would like to put forward this thesis, and I'll explain it right away. With the invasion of Ukraine, we are witnessing the Hitler of our times. Now, I am opposed to the casual use of the word Nazi or Hitler as a schmear word against people who we oppose politically in any kind of democratic framework. I think that's a terrible abuse and a disgrace to the real victims of the historical Hitler. But here's the interesting thing, Sarah. One of Putin's justifications for the invasion, whose goal is regime change, is, quote, denazification of Ukraine. So Putin is the one who is using the Nazi schmear to justify his aggression. And here's another interesting facet of this. The other goal, alleged goal, to protect the Russian-speaking minority in Ukraine from alleged genocide, Sarah, that's straight out of Hitler's playbook. As he gobbled up the Ruhr Valley, uh, like Crimea, pieces of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland, like Donbass region in Ukraine, and assimilated Austria, just like Putin is now assimilating Belarus, all on the way to the invasion of Poland, as Putin has now invaded Ukraine, the event which triggered World War II. That's why I think we can say that Putin is the Hitler of our times. Yeah, it's frighteningly familiar. You know, we we lived in France. Uh, my my family and I lived in France um, in 2014 when Putin invaded the Ukraine the first time, and and like nothing happened. You know, there was a mild slap on the wrist, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" You know, like this this is France. Don't you remember? I mean, and like all the the Western European nations. And like, hello, Mr. Chamberlain. Thanks for your appeasement. And you know, so I have to say, on some level, this is completely un horribly unsurprising to me. You know, the the signal was sent, oh, it, it doesn't matter. And I, I think there's a kind of ongoing contempt for Eastern Europe that, uh, you know, they're white people who don't count. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, um, yeah, I think it's clear, you know, and, and like, I think the comparison to the Sudetenland is also very good because there were tons and tons of ethnic uh, Germans and German speakers in what is today's Czech Republic that was one of the reasons why Hitler absolutely had to annex that part of Czechoslovakia because it was an arrow in the part of Germany, but it was also protecting the minorities. And um, and there were very nasty population exchanges at the end of World War II and this ongoing and world and World War One as well. This kind of ongoing attempt to you know purify and um, the populations and keep the borders sound. Uh, nothing 
nothing good comes of this. Oh, anything that Putin or his followers are making up about this this greater Russia is just um, it's it's a cover for a, a pure lust for destruction. Yeah, and of course, the lust for destruction uh, is kind of the the end result of a lust for domination, because the domination providentially fails, and then the aggression finally turns back upon uh, oneself and uh, one's people. Uh, it was actually, when Hitler invaded Poland, he was claiming that the Polish state was persecuting German minority in Poland. So it's the same playbook. Yeah, and I just would like to say one one very critical principle of at least modern politics, this has probably been going on longer, is that as a rule, the people in charge name things the exact opposite of what they actually are. <laughs> so by Putin saying that his goal is denazification, what we should hear is, I'm the new Nazi with the new Nazi ideology. It's just been transferred from the Aryans to the Russians. But it's... Ex but it, it's I don't know. It's like a Freudian slip, right? Where yep. you exactly name that what you're doing, but it's actually the opposite of what you're doing. And and we'll we'll put some meat on those bones in a moment here because I think it is important to show that this is not a smear calling Hitler, uh, Putin the Hitler of our times, because we're going to show you uh, or tell you, dear listeners, just how this uh, holy uh, Russia. Russian world ideology is, in fact, um, a, a new iteration of, of fascism uh, in a moment. But I want to just point out to the spiritual kingdom, alongside this first analyst, uh, stab at an analysis of Putin's uh, politics, uh, that there's a, a, a German Christian movement of the 1930s has reappeared in Moscow with Patriarch Kirill, uh, blessing the aggression. And this has created a, a, a terrible crisis within Eastern Orthodoxy and just recently issued, uh, resulted in the emergence of an Orthodox Barman Declaration, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, but let's talk now about the ideology and the spiritual sources of, uh, spiritual sources of Putin's aggression. Have you ever heard of Alexander Dugan? Not until you told me about him a couple days ago. Well, what have you learned about him? <laughs> um, terrifying monster, on, honestly. Um, uh, demon possessed, I don't know. <laughs> you, better, you better go into the details because I, I have only invective. Right. Uh, we'll put a reference in the show notes for this. Uh, but Dugan is a Russian uh, a, a, a philosopher. Uh, and religious ideologist um, who uh, tried to re reinvigorate Bolshevism after the collapse of the Soviet Union and found that was going nowhere and then and basically finally settled upon a Russian remash of national socialism, Nazism, yeah. combined with a Manichaean worldview that contrasts pious, holy Russia over against the godless and secular West. That's just a, a stunning uh, uh, thing, and it has uh, and it has captured Putin. Uh, uh, Putin is not a communist. I mean, this is really important to see. He's 
In fact, he's often critical of Lenin. Uh, and he likes Stalin because Stalin, in order to defeat the invasion uh, by Germany, finally realized that Leninism was not going to do the trick, and he appealed to Russian patriotism and orthodoxy, rehabilitated the Orthodox Church. And so that's the admiration that Putin has for Stalin, and it fits with this Dugan uh, remash of National Socialism with a touch of Manichaean uh, 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 theology. I think it's important to, to say that, that this is not um, communism redux and that Putin's love is not for some kind of Marxist paradise. It is for power and then destruction of anyone who is not in the inner circle. The and you get so much more mileage out of an ideology that has a religious juice in it than you do from a purely secular one. And that's I mean, that's why doctrinaire Marxism has its own kind of limits and ends up developing its own kind of religious elements as as uh, happened in, in real life communism. But I think Putin discovered you get a whole lot more mileage if you just ditch the pretense of atheism and secularism and utterly corrupt the church and make false promises to believers and then, you know, broadcast the fiction of the supremely pious nation of people um, while you go and invade a sovereign state and murder people. Absolutely. So there, there is all these parallel features to nas German National Socialism of the 1930s that uh, Richard Steigman Gall laid out in his book Holy Reich, which are now reappearing in a Russian version in Putin and his militarism. And I think it's really important for people in the West to understand who, especially those who aren't sympathetic to religion, though I'm presuming most of our listeners are, is there's this common understanding that, you know, religion is so corruptible and it's so dangerous, it would be better to do without it. And the point is, the lust for power goes after religion because it is the greatest power, because it is actually bigger than political power. There is nothing you'd expect to be more targeted by the will to corruption and domination than religion itself. And if the, you know, the uh, the old school, you know, substantial religions don't collude, God willing, then other religions will be invented to take their place. And that's what, you know, this Duganism kind of is. But that also says why it is so important for religious belief to be intently trained in their scripture and their disciplines and their worship and their prayers because they should assume they are always going to be the target of the greatest lust for corruption from powerful and wicked people. Beautifully said, Sarah. And it's just a reminder of an Augustinian point that we've made again and again in the podcast that religion is about what we love. It's about what we value, what we value and love ultimately. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, Jesus says, and all these other things will take care of themselves. And that, that is the heart of, of, of religion as a human phenomenon, this desire for salvation, this desire for God, this desire for, for uh, integrity and righteousness and justice and peace. It, and that's why religion is ineradicable. And that's also why religion is the target of the devil. And it's uh, the abuses of religion are so potent. Well said, beautifully. And I think that is also, Sarah, it allows us to turn our focus back upon 
the contemporary West and see that Duganism in Russia is it arises as a reaction to contemporary Western, I have three adjective uh, nouns, arrogance, complacency, and naivete. Arrogance, we won in 1989 and the rest of the history will unfold easily. Complacency, no need to worry about nuclear weapons or bioweapons or chemical weapons. We're on top of the world. And naivete, the potential for human evil is a thing of the past. Western arrogance, complacency, and naivete. Yes. Well, I would say to that, those three things have certainly um, made it easier, but I'm I'm less. <laughs> this is part of my um, reckoning um, recently, but I'm less convinced now by the arguments like, well, it's our fault really because we set up the conditions for this to happen. No, Dugan didn't have to pursue this evil ideology. No, Putin didn't have to bitterly regret the loss of his empire and embark on a cane of uh, a campaign of control and destruction. I, I'm I'm a little nervous because there's this um. I'd say this is it's a kind of a Western Christianity detached from its roots, which wants to always take responsibility for every evil and not make the actual masters of evil responsible for their own actions. So yes, I would agree. Our arrogance, complacency, and naivete have contributed to the conditions that have that made Putin decide he could risk the invasion. But it is not our fault. It is his fault. It is Dugan's fault. It is the people who support them fault. And it's important, even as we confess our own sin, not to, again, get so enchanted with our own sinfulness that um, we we don't <laughs> name the evil, which, as you said at the beginning, is our, our primary task here. I agreed with your emphasis, but I would say name the evils, plural. And one of the evils is the arrogance, complacency, and naivete of the West for the last 30 years. And I really mean this seriously with the ideological claim made famous by Francis Fukuyama that with the defeat of Soviet communism in 1989, we have come, he said, to the end of history. And that was behind the first Bush's New World Order. We have come to the end of history. And that was an ideology that all that remains is for liberal democracy to occupy the earth under the aegis of neoliberalism's economic march to globalization, a processes which blundered us into uh, interventions in Serbia, Kosovo, into Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and almost where we failed and probably should have intervened when the red line of chemical weapons was crossed in Syria. So, you know, this arrogance, complacency, and naivete have all contributed to the destabilized situation that we have now come to. And in the process, this uh, globalization that occurred uh, through these 30 years uh, has gutted the working class in the industrial world. And, and, um, and created the, the kind of needs for, for populism and authoritarianism that uh, Putin has so uh, masterfully um, uh, instrumentalized. All right, point taken. Okay, 
Now let's turn to the crisis within Orthodox Christianity. And uh, we'll give you the, uh, in the show notes, we'll give you a a link to the Declaration on the Russian World Teaching, which has been issued by the major figures of Orthodox Christianity. But I I would just like to say basically this. For many centuries, Western Christians have been critical of Orthodoxy's tendencies towards what was polemically called Caesaropapism and its too cozy synthesis with ethnicity, something called ethnophilatism. Now, what do those two things mean? Well, the Orthodox, you know, don't have a pope. And it was the emperor who summoned the councils to solve the church's problems. And so this kind of model that that we don't need a pope, the emperor will be our patron and take care of us, and then enabling the church to solve its own business. Uh, And in the West, of course, it was a very different development when the papacy became such a powerful institution, so that all through the medieval period, there was a contest between emperor and pope. Uh, And another factor, then, is kind of the theology of incarnation, which we hear parroted in such shallow ways, you know, I want an incarnate faith that's at work in the world and all that kind of shallow stuff. But, uh, or what we, uh, more, more specifically, Sarah, when we say we want the faith to be enculturated, we want the faith to be culturally incarnate. Well, this is something orthodoxy has been saying for uh, 1,700 years, and it's resulted in the synthesis of the Christian faith, the Orthodox faith, with various nationalities. Ethnophilatism, it's called. And so Holy Russia and the Holy Church are simply one and the same thing. So Western Christians have been critical of that for a long time, though I have to say that Lutheranism, with its loss of the papacy, has, in a minor way, imitated both the errors of Caesaropapism, with the alliance of throne and altar, and ethnophilatism, you know, German Christianity that happened in the 30s. Well, back to orthodoxy. Going all the way back to the beginning, you can see two contrary political tendencies at work in Eastern Orthodoxy. And they can be summarized as the semi-Aryan subordinationism of Eusebius of Caesarea. He heralded the conversion of Constantine as the victory of Christianity, which henceforth would be patronized by the imperial power. So it's triumphalist and Caesaropapist. That's the semi-Aryan theology of Eusebius. But at the same time, that Eusebius made issued this pan to political power. The anti-Arian Athanasius suffered exile at least seven times, resisting the very political subordination of the church to the state that Eusebius was celebrating. And I see, and I hope our readers will take time to read the Orthodox Declaration on the Russian world teaching, we can see now finally the victory of Athanasius over Eusebius. Well, in them, whether it's a victory in in Russia or in larger orthodoxy is is the the question of the hour. 
Right, it, but it's a church. It's a church struggle, and it's a tr- struggle in the spiritual kingdom, as opposed to the uh, political kingdom. Right, right. I think it's important to say that Orthodoxy has been aware of the problem of ethnophilatism for a long time, and it has been condemned in the past, though it's almost always tangled up with questions of um, jurisdiction and, and which patriarch uh, is related to which national church. So um, it's it's. Um, I don't think there are a lot of very clean precedents in the past to look at, but it's not like this is the first time it has ever right. occurred to them. And um, I'm very, I'm not at all surprised, but very proud how many of my Orthodox friends are signatories to this declaration um, against this kind of, um, I would even go so far as to call it a romantic vision, um, a, a, a blood and soil vision of Christianity as aligned with culture and nation and condemning it utterly in favor of the true kingdom of God in which Jesus alone reigns. Um, I'm proud of the statement that they have made. And I think you just mentioned before we started talking the growing numbers of dissidents within Russia who are protesting the war, including Orthodox priests who are very at very great risk speaking out against their patriarch and condemning the war as well. Yes, uh, the sainted Alexander Men was the first of uh, such Russian saints who, will, who were going to be martyred in the days to come. Well, Sarah, let's start drawing this to a close by turning attention to ourselves. And, and I, I think I can capture the mood here in the United States by saying we are enduring a humiliation as we watch this barbaric Russian war machine pulverize Ukraine, as we are intimidated by the nuclear saber that Putin deliberately rattles. This, in this terrible humiliation we are experiencing, where there seems to be no good policy options for the West, I want to make a number of points. More courageous neighbor love, I think, is sapped, as we said early, earlier, by our guilty awareness of the stupid, stupid military interventions and indeed some of our own atrocities committed in the past 30 years. So we have, in effect, squandered any claim to moral superiority. I don't think constitutional democracy and Russian fascism are moral equivalents, Uh, but we who uh, occupy constitutional democracies have, in fact, by our behavior, squandered Uh, the intrinsic claim to moral superiority for that political order. So, as we said earlier, what's at issue here is the victimhood of Ukraine and not at all our feeling good about ourselves. I think in the season of Lent we have a lot to feel ashamed of. Secondly, persisting in our complacency and naivete, I think we are resisting clear-eyed awareness that we have now entered into, at Russia's initiative, we have entered into an open new Cold War. Certainly that's better than a hot one between nuclear superpowers. But nevertheless, it is war being waged by economic and diplomatic means. And if that's so, I would say that there's several 
depressing realities entailed by that clear-sighted recognition. First, fossil fuels for the foreseeable future are geopolitical, potent geopolitical weapons, the climate crisis notwithstanding. Two, import bans directed against Russia may make us feel good like we're doing something, but in fact may very well play into Putin's deeper purpose of withdrawing Russia from the global system and consolidating an alliance with the likes of North Korea, Iran, and China. Three, the vindictive purpose of leveling Ukraine to rubble and causing a massive refugee flight might well be the fallback victory Putin wants, leaving the smoldering wreck of Ukraine to the West as their problem to solve. Depressing, as I said. Yeah. Um, you know, just, just to those points specifically, um, if, if Putin is determined to have a hot war, nuclear or otherwise, um, all the patient resistance or economic sanctions in the world are not going to make any difference. And, um, you know, I, one of the things you hear is like, well, but you know, Ukraine's not NATO. So, you know, it's only when, when, um, Putin crosses the NATO line that we have to get militarily involved, um, just throwing Ukraine under the bus because it happens not to be in this particular treaty alliance. Um, I, I think that's an outrageous failure of, of neighbor love. And I recognize fully in saying this that for uh, for us to get involved militarily could spark the whole thing, <laughs> yeah. the whole thing go up in flames. Right. But I don't, I mean, if, from my vantage point, what do I know? I don't see any reason for the man ever to stop. Um, and I don't think there's any line he's not going to cross. And I think, um, again, one of these painful post-naive realizations is that um, shows of weakness and patience can actually incite more violence and um, more destruction rather than um, impressing the evildoer with the marvelous moral self-restraint of his opposite. You know, Sarah, I, I'm observing as the commentariat here in the United States, it's almost like the 1930s all over again. There is a right-wing America First Party that is arguing uh, that we have no national interest in Ukraine. It's just another damned European war, and uh, we should stay out of it and, and bulk ourselves up uh, for a confrontation with China. And, and this kind of a isolationist American firstism uh, on the right. On the left, you hear uh, the the mainline church is saying, oh, let's pray for peace. Let's pray for peace. There is no peace, folks. The false prophet says peace, peace, when there is no peace. There is no peace. We need to reread Reinhold Niebuhr's classic 1930s essay, Why the Christian Church is Not Pacifist. Like you, I am not advocating getting into a hot war with Russia. I am well aware of uh, how, how catastrophic that could be. But 
balancing that awareness is your observation that once the Hitler of our times is on the march, he will stop at nothing but equal force. Now, that is the conundrum, that is the dilemma that we are in right now. Oh, God, where's our Winston Churchill? We've got Biden. Okay. We have Zelensky, who actually spoke to the British Parliament and quoted back to them Churchill's words, we will fight in the beaches, we will fight in the streets, we will never surrender, we will never give up. Well, the West needs its Churchill. <laughs> I'm glad they have Zelensky, but, um, you know, where... <sighs> Anyway, all right. Well, let, let let me not go there. I guess uh, just to wrap up from my vantage point, I have two things to add to this. One is that, um, you know, we're Americans. We spend a lot of our, our time and energy trying to understand what has gone wrong in Western culture and civilization and church. We are, you know, have been trained in the arts of self-criticism, and I don't intend to relinquish those. But um, it can be easy to lose sight of the bigger picture. And the fact is, I'd so much rather be having our problems than almost any other problems in the world now or in human history in the past. What we have is really good and it's worth preserving. I've been to other places that are not like this, where life is a grind, where people have no options, where there is corruption of levels that most Americans, even when they're aware of American corruption, can't even fathom how far and deep it goes. So what we have is valuable. It's not to be tossed away in, again, some sort of fiction of, of repentance where what we're really doing is salving our own consciences instead of working for something good and strong and beautiful in the world. Well, it's beautiful, Sarah. And I, 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 I truly do agree with you about that, that constitutional democracy is an achievement of Western civilization. And for us theologians, even more specifically, it's the product of the Protestant Reformation historically. And it makes me think of Bonhoeffer's thought from the prison cell, how he noted that the secular children of the Enlightenment, the very ones that were arrogant, complacent, and naive, and spurned the church, we're now suffering under Hitler's regime, and Bonhoeffer speculated that perhaps they would realize that their moral stance, how deeply indebted it was to Christianity, and perhaps under the, this duress they would return to the church. Uh, and I think that that is my remarks about arrogance, complacency, and naivete are addressed to the secularist mentality of the cultural elites of the Western world who have forgotten their roots, uh, the rock from which they were hewn. And, uh, of course, my other s sad comment, however, is the church, which today can only offer pious platitudes, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace, will hardly give them shelter should they even think about returning to the church. And the other thing I want to say is that I live in Asia. I live in Japan, which is an island to the east of China. There's another island to the east of China, which is called Taiwan. And you better believe that 
the CCP is watching to see how the West responds to Ukraine. I have been very relieved that China has not immediately launched an invasion of Ukraine. (laughs) And I've been very relieved that China does not seem to be unqualified in its support for what Putin is doing. But this is a test run also for what could be massive, massive war in Asia as well. The U.S. has always been committed to Taiwan. China has been outrageous in its claims against Taiwan. This cannot happen. <laughs> there, this needs to at least, if nothing else, function as a deterrence or we are going to have like a, an entire Eurasian landmass war on our hands. So um, where I'm standing, there there is a lot at stake in Ukraine, not just for the Ukrainians and not just for the NATO countries on the border with Russia, but indeed for the entire planet. These are the times that try men's souls. That's the old cliche, but right now it's really true. And how much more fervently the church should pray the litany uh, that concludes with the the ground of hope. Uh, uh, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. And that is where believers have to find the courage in this dire situation to stand up for righteousness, to stand up for justice, and ultimately, therefore, to stand up for peace. All right, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Listeners, please, you know, drop us a line, let us know what you're thinking about this or how we can help. Um, help you and your churches think through these issues.